0: jesus name amen amen thank you can i qualify something uh, please so he said this is our money what he means by that is that this is our community fund that we work from but we've considered it to be god's money i just didn't want you to, i'm sorry too it's just a technicality that's all i'm sorry okay but yeah, you understood what you're saying. I understood what you're saying. It didn't even need to be qualified. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Uh, it's Father's Day. If your dad is around, yeah, let's give it up for dads around here. If your dad is still with us, be sure that you show him kindness and gratitude today. If your are dad like me, you know the drill. Just say, hey, this is great. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> This is also Juneteenth, uh, and, and this is like the second year that, that it has been a national holiday, and that's something to keep in mind as well through this weekend. Juneteenth is a worthy thing to remember and celebrate, because liberty is most definitely a biblical concept, and the valuation of our fellow human beings is very much a gospel concept. So Juneteenth is a cool thing, so happy Juneteenth to you as well. That's the end of my holiday sermon. Now... <laughs> We're on to the gospel of Luke uh, because I've got limited time on earth. I don't mean that in any kind of light. Like, I mean, I just mean like we all have limited time and I just wanted to focus on ah boy. You're dismissed. Let's go home. Imagine an alternate universe somewhere where the FSU football team has made it to the national championship game. And and before the game. Coach Norville gets the team together, and he's talking to them, and he's saying, guys, we are going to win this game. It's going to be hard, though. It's going to be really, really tough. It's going to be painful, and it's going to look like we're out for the, you know, out for the rest of it, but hang in there. We will make it. I guarantee you we will win. And res- in response to that, all of the players begin arguing with each other about who should be the captain of the team and who it is that's going to be carried off the field on everybody's shoulders uh, at the end of it. And imagine the coach takes aside the star player and just says, listen, it's going to be really tough for you. You're going to really have a rough time. You'll seem like you're down for the count, but hang in there. You're going to be all right. You're going to get through this. We're going to win this game. And in response to that, he begins like doing a Heisman pose and talking about all the cool things he's going to be able to do in this game and how amazingly he's going to perform uh, in that we would think, right, that the players are not on the same page as the coach at that point. Now, a cynical person or a Gator fan would say, "Well, that sounds like FSU football to me." But either way, we would recognize—you know, you see what I'm talking about here. You would we'd know that, that there's a problem here. There's a problem in the in the communication phase of this, and and we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke today. And in our text, we're going to be reading something that will look pretty much like Jesus' disciples are not on the same page. As Jesus is, as he's speaking to him, he's going to be giving them some very important final instructions before his arrest and execution. And they're going to be doing the very human trick of not paying attention or when they do pay attention of misunderstanding what it is that he's talking about. And you'll see what I'm talking about as we get into the text. But if you have a Bible and if you want to follow along, if you'll head to Luke chapter 22, please. Last week, we read about the events that led up to the Last Supper, and we read about Jesus's instructions for this this new celebration, this new ceremony called the communion ceremony. Those words aren't used, but he went through the bread and the cup, uh, and Matt and Janelle did a really great job of having a very instructive uh, conversation about that, I thought. Now today, Jesus is going to turn his attention to his disciples, and he's going to give him his final directives. And the key principles that he wants to see grow from their relationship that we ha- that he they have with him. He wants them to be exhibiting things in his absence, and he's trying to communicate that to them. Uh, it's going to have some really important lessons for us as well, since we're part of this long chain of people who have put our trust in Jesus throughout the ages and who've committed ourselves to His ways. So if you're there in Luke chapter 22, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 21. Jesus has explained about the bread and the cup. And then he says, but here at this table, sitting among us as a friend. Real quick, if you're using a different translation, because most other I'm using the NLT here. It is, it is a, it's called a dynamic equivalence translation. In other words, it's not word for word. It takes what the words are saying and tries to put it into context or in a meaning that we'll be able to understand in our language. The literal translation of that is that with, whose hand is on the table. But whose hand is on the table is not, a, is not an idiom that we're familiar with. And it means simply who's among us as a friend. So that's what the NLT is doing here. I just didn't want anybody to be thrown if you're reading something and you're thinking, wait, that's not what this says. It's his hand is on the table sitting among us as a friend. Still, verse 21 is the man who will betray me for it has been determined that the son of man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? Okay, we're going to stop here for just a minute. Uh, When we harmonize the gospel accounts, we realize that they were eating the Passover meal when Jesus drops this bombshell on them that someone in their very midst has already betrayed Jesus to the authorities. The disciples are all shocked. They're wondering who, you know, they do some genuine introspection here. We see in the other Gospels, they're asking, is it me? In this account, in Luke's account, they're wondering who it could be. They're confused uh, as to who this would be. I'm sure Judas is rather surprised that Jesus knows uh, about what he's done. Wouldn't you? I don't know. That's a weird thing. If, If, you know, if I'm sitting at the table and suddenly Jesus says, one of you guys has betrayed me. I'd be like, oh, okay, he knows I'm quitting. I'm out of this. I'm not, I forget that, but bail, you know, mayday. Uh, but he follows through with his plans. That's a, that's a very intriguing thing to me. But Luke tells us that Jesus not only knows this, that someone has betrayed him, he also knows what's ahead of him, his own death, which was forecast long ago in the, in the scriptures. But he adds this warning about the sorrow that is facing the one who betrayed Jesus. The prediction of sorrow for the betrayer, I believe, is just another indicator of Jesus' love for Judas. Jesus is about to face some serious sorrow himself in the coming hours. He's about to face some terrible situations, and yet his concern right here is for the one who's betrayed him. An amazing insight into the heart of God. It's almost like this final plea to Judas to change course, to turn from what he's doing, but we know it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. What Jesus says at the outset is important, though. Seated here among us as a friend is someone whose behavior is actually working against us. And what made the difference in that? I was pondering that, thinking about that. What made the difference between Judas and this other group of people? And I believe it comes down to belief. I believe it's belief. Judas no longer believed in the legitimacy of Jesus's mission. And so he was setting off on a mission of his own. But all of that was not outwardly apparent to anyone. He was still at the table. And I think that's an important lesson for us. It's one that I think The biblical narrative repeats fairly often. It's one that Jesus repeats at different times, parable of the wheat and tares and things like that. But it's an important lesson to us that our relationship with Jesus must go farther than just mere association with him. Judas was associated with Jesus. He was at the table right there with the rest of them. He ministered with them. When Jesus sent them out on the mission that they were on earlier, Judas went with them. Nobody ever said in there, you know, what is up with Judas? He never heals anyone. He never goes on these trips with us. All he does is stand around and rub his hands going, (laughs) nobody said anything like that. Judas fit right in. He was right there, physically close to Jesus. But his heart was making its own deals. Now, this is not meant to incite us to start looking for heretics in our midst, uh, you know, who's you know, in or out or whatever, or even to begin worrying about our own salvation or place with, with God. But it does serve as impetus to examine our hearts because sometimes we need to look at these things, not so much in a black or white fashion, but on a spectrum. Like, start examining our hearts. Where am I on that spectrum between faithful John and Judas? Where is my heart right now? Because sometimes we're moving back and forth on those things. It's not a, a static target all the time. So it's not a bad idea to 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 take an interior inventory now and anon and ask, where is my heart? What am I looking for in life? Where have I put my trust? When it comes to the important things of my life, there came a point, and I'll let the various theologians battle it out as to where and when, but there came a point in Judas' thinking when Jesus was not the answer, and he acted on that determination. And that story is in all the Gospels. So, it, you know, not to make us afraid, I don't believe, but to encourage us to continue drawing closer to Jesus because I've made that statement before, we'll never drift closer to Christ. If we, if we don't make a conscious determination in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes, in our wills, I want to emulate, I want to follow Jesus. We're not going to drift into that. So it, it's important for us as his followers to examine our hearts and not just hang out at the table uh, all the time. All right, well, that's such a downer, Rob. I know, but it's here in the text. So, but we'll move on. Verse 24 gets a little bit, in my thinking, a little bit comical. Uh, verse 24 Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. So, Jesus tells them, Somebody's going to betray us. They're saying, Who could do this? And then it, you know, then they start to argue about who's the greatest. So you can kind of hear that conversation. Like, well, it couldn't be me. I'm like, I'm like the chief among you guys. I don't even know what you're talking about. Obviously, I've been in charge. I've been the ruler of this. Anyway, verse 25. Jesus told them, "In this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people. Yet they call themselves friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you." should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who's more important? The one who sits at the the table or the one who serves? Well, the one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. I just feel like that's something that needs to be repeated and said over and over and over again, especially in the context of our modern evangelical church structure. Now, like I said, it's hard to imagine exactly how the disciples landed at this spot, like how the conversation went from finding out someone's betraying them to determining who it is that's going to be captain of the disciple team. Uh, I, it's very possible there's a break in here uh, somewhere that it built To that, but either way, Jesus provides this unthinkable contrast between how advancement is made in this world's system and how God intends things to be. People who advance in this world do so by gaining power over people, you got power over others, but not here, Jesus says, not in the context of God's kingdom, not here in relationship to Jesus. Instead, we discover that our relationship with Jesus prompts us to service, not a grasp for power. And Jesus is very precise about how we his followers are going to attain to greatness. And we want to be great. Anybody here want to be great? Jesus actually tells us how this is done. It's not through our education, It's not through our wealth or what we can achieve that sets us above the rest. It's not our ability to rise through the ranks and gain authority. No, we become great, he says, by walking in his footsteps. And he points to himself as the chief example of this, the the son of man. I am one who is among you who serves. And if we couple this with John's gospel, we know that there at that very table earlier, Jesus was washing the feet of all of the disciples. So as his followers, we're going to follow suit is what he's telling us. We will continue to serve and to love sacrificially. And it's through that that God's reign is advanced in this world. It's through this loving service. In John 13, Jesus actually even indicates that it's this sort of attitude, demeanor, that will alert the world that we're actually Jesus' followers because of this attitude, this heart that's willing to serve another. This is how we're identified as Christians. It's the exact opposite (laughs) Of what the disciples seemed to be hoping for. They were looking around for Jesus to hand them a scepter. Jesus hands them a broom and then later a cross. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't just trying to teach them a lesson uh, on humility. Oh, you think you're so great? Well, I'll show you. You're going to do this or that. No, Jesus gives this command. And this is what we have to think about and keep in mind when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to everything that Jesus is saying and doing. Jesus' mission, the gospel mission, is to come and set all things right. Remember, that's what this is about. This is about the kingdom of God. God setting things right, putting things back the way they were meant to be. And being a servant is actually part of the humanizing process that God wants to lead us into. It's a part of the sanctification process sanctification. Rob, you never use that word. Well, I try to avoid it because it's kind of, you know, religious sounding. But basically, sanctification, the idea that the Holy Spirit is at work molding us and shaping us into the people we were intended to be. The Holy Spirit working to set things right. Becoming a servant is a part of that. We tend to think in terms of sanctification of the work of the Spirit as, you know, turning us into people who abstain from this and abstain from that. But There's actually this whole attitude that is inherent to this, that of being willing to take the lower place and serve someone else out of love. God's original intent for humanity was service. We were meant in the garden to be servants to, to God's purposes and then servants to creation, representing God's goodness into the world as image bearers of God. We're wired for it. I've told this before, but it was several years ago, Psychology Today ran an article about, article about the powerful impact that serving has on our mental and emotional health. That people who spent time serving others in whatever capacity it may have been happen to be happier and healthier both emotionally and physical, physically than those who didn't do any sort of service at all endorphins get released into our brain that trigger this sense of rush and euphoria when we're serving others that tells me that god hardwired us to serve this is who we were meant to be this is where we're going to find that sense of completion and Wholeness. It's not from being able to gain power over someone else. It's not from being able to gather up as many toys and material things that we can possibly get. We keep assuming if I get one more thing, I'll finally feel whole. And it doesn't happen. I mean, I believe that's part of the reason that as Americans, we make up the largest consumer market on the planet. That's, I mean, that's an indisputable fact. And we have the largest amount of resources to consume on the planet, above every other nation, and yet we are ranked as the nation with some of the highest rates of depression in the world. There's a correlation, there's theology there in that. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to see and to get us to see that God's call on all of our lives is to be a servant so that no matter what we're doing it, we're doing it with the motive that I'm serving God. I will take care of this person. I will reach out in kindness because this is how I serve God. This is how I'm faithful to him. And listen, I can't tell you what service will look like in your life, but man life is full of opportunities. And like we come together here on a, you know, gather as a community and here within this community, just this is our training ground, right? This is we gather here to learn how to do the stuff. And then we go out and do this in the world. So, I mean, there's tons of opportunities here in a gathering of a community like this. I, I mean, helping with one of the largest responsibilities, the the kids gate stuff, or sign up to welcome people, the that may be coming to investigate what we're up to here or help with the media or help with the coffee or bring meals to people who are sick through the meal train. I, I could, you know, it could, it could just simply be looking around and, uh, picking up the coffee cups that, uh, you know, get left behind, uh, uh, on a morning. It could be holding the door open for somebody. I mean, it doesn't have to be grand things. Somebody's walking in and, 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 you know, it could be a crowded day and somebody can't find a seat. It could be standing uh, while somebody else has an opportunity to sit. It could be praying for someone who looks like they're distressed. It could be talking to someone who looks like they're alone. I could spend the next half hour going over all the various ways in which we can serve one another in this community without it being an official title or, or some uh, position of authority in ministry here in some official capacity we learn how to do that here. That's why we're here. You know, it's, it's a, okay, forgive me for being human Rob for just a moment here. And I am extremely human, but, but I, I'm telling you, I, I think about the way we approach the church fellowship and, and how consumer oriented we are for the most part. I mean, after 28 years, I've heard a lot of reasons why Eastgate is not everybody's cup of tea, and I get that. That totally makes I'm always usually surprised that somebody comes back. But, but I've heard a lot of stories about why people, you know, I'm not getting fed. I don't like the youth program. The music's too loud. The music's not loud enough. The pastor's too funny. The pastor's not funny enough. It's all these different things. In 28 years, I have never had never had someone come to me and say, you know what? I just don't have any place to serve around here. Like I try to do stuff. I try to go meet somebody new, but somebody gets there before me. I never get a chance to. I try to sign up to teach the kids. But it's all filled up every time I try to do it. 28 years. I've never heard that as a reason why anybody's going to leave. I don't know. There's, there's just something I think we've got to examine in our hearts about this stuff. There's a there's a push, there's a flow to our culture that has us trained to be self-centric consumers, to find out what's in this for me. What can I take in? When wholeness, when greatness, as Jesus describes it, is on the opposite side of that. How can I get in here and serve? How can I roll up my sleeves and help? All right, enough of that rant. Let's uh, 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 back to the notes. Challenge to the text okay. So the challenge from the text is what is my view of greatness? Then, am I allowing Jesus to reinterpret this? Is is Jesus changing my dictionary? That's the question. Is it changing how I view this? What's he prompting me to do? Okay, moving on. Verse twenty-eight. He says, you, and this is interesting, I like, he says, you've stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my father uh, has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you'll sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is really intriguing to me. I, I just want to quickly mention this. So they're grasping for greatness, and Jesus shows that he's not disinterested in their status question, he just wants them to reframe it in this. He doesn't want them comparing themselves with each other. He wants everything measured by their connection to himself and his kingdom. It's going to be, you know, you're going to be experiencing things, good things, but it's in a different context than what you understand as the way the world works. They stayed with him even when it hurts sometimes. We saw in John chapter 6, it was not a popular thing for Jesus, you know, to, to have to, to be a Jesus follower. But they stayed with him. They stuck with that. He describes them then as enthroned as judges over Israel. And this is a way of him describing what is about to happen. That they're going to form a new community. A, a new Chosen people. Meaning, you know, something that is actually going to supersede what Israel did. That's the concept behind what he's communicating there. Something that's not just for one type of people, but for all people all over the earth. The apostle Paul later described this in Ephesians 2-6 as being seated in the heavenlies, in the heavenly realm because we're united with Christ. So our rule, any kind of rule, any kind of authority, anything like that, has to do with his kingdom. And the promotion of who he is, not the way the kingdoms here operate with a grasp for power over people. Anyway, I just wanted to touch on that. We'll keep reading verse 31. Jesus is still talking. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail so that when you've repented and turn to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I even died for you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times uh, that you know me. Oh, did I? (laughs) You'll deny three times that you even know me. So Peter's reaction here is something that we're all prone to do. You know, in times when there's no immediate danger facing us, we can start thinking about how mature we are as Christians I remember as a kid when we had the public swimming pool and had a high dive and I would think about how I wanted to go off that high dive. And when I wasn't anywhere near that, I had all these imaginations about how I was going to do this thing. I'm going to be doing backflips off it and jackknifes and all these different things. And I got to the pool with all of my friends and I climbed to the top of that thing. And I had to do that climb of shame when I went back down (laughs) and people, because I couldn't deal with it. I guess it was too much for me at the time. Hey, give me a break. I was just, I was only 18. So anyway, so... (laughs) So anyway, when there's no immediate danger facing us as Christians, we can feel like, I got this. I, you know, my strong is my strong. My faith is strong. I can overcome all of these things and difficulties. And it can be a real danger for us like it was for Peter to start developing an overconfidence in our own ability to overcome life's problems. I would never do this or that as a Christian. We'll look down on someone else. Oh, I couldn't imagine doing that. You know, I don't, I don't care how much I'm tempted. Then boom, we're down on our face in, in that situation. But what Jesus said before Peter responded is important. The Satan, the enemy, asked to sift either all of the disciples or just Peter. The language is kind of difficult to determine. But the meaning is to scatter them all to the wind. You know, you sift something, you're throwing it in the Ancient world, you'd sift the wheat. You're throwing up the the heavier kernels so that the lighter chaff will blow away. But what did this mean? What did, what an interesting thing! The Satan has asked, like, like who 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 did the Satan request this from? We're assuming God. Is this literal or is Jesus speaking figuratively in this? It's all really hard to say. It could have even been a cultural idiom that everybody else was familiar with because nobody responds to this whatsoever. If Jesus had said that around me, i had been like, wait, what? Who did what? Let's, let's back up here a minute. But they seem, you know, to, to roll with that. The important part is what Jesus did. He interceded on Peter's behalf. Jesus is predicting Peter's failure, but it was also a prediction of his restoration in the same breath. And Jesus is present in this conversation, in his description of it. Jesus is present all the way through it. When you have repented and turned to me again, you'll use this for good, Jesus says. We have to wonder, was this an option for Judas as well? You know, the Bible isn't too clear on that. Depending on certain theological camps, it's either a resounding yes or a resounding no. I'm in the, hmm, that's interesting, I'm not sure camp. Uh, I do think... There are notable differences between Peter and Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus because he clearly no longer believed in his mission. But Peter only distanced himself from Jesus out of fear for his own immediate safety. And we'll read in the text later on, not today, but later on, he's going to be really distraught over his decision to do that. And that's because of the relationship that he had with Jesus. And that may be the most important distinction. But it's a comforting thought that Peter didn't face this temptation to, to deny Jesus. He didn't face it alone. Even when Peter fell, Jesus is there by his side in his intercession, in his pleadings for him. And and to me, it just reminds us that our relationship with Jesus ensures that our failures and our failures, listen, are real and I, I I hesitate to say it, but it is a reality, are inevitable. None of us does this well. We know that. But all of these things that we go through, all of these times when we stumble and we fall, when we sin, it's redeemable because of our relationship with Jesus. We'll find as the story goes on that, that um, what Jesus predicted happened. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times in order to keep himself safe. But in verse 62 of this chapter... When he does this, it says that Peter left the area bitterly weeping over what he'd done. His connection with Jesus hadn't been severed because he still cared. He still loved Jesus. But in his own weakness, he fell short of what he imagined he'd do when it came to times of temptation. And if you're a human being reading this, you know exactly what this is like. I mean all of us are familiar with this who of us hasn't been in that place where we're sorrowful where we're discouraged because we fell into whatever the temptation may be something that we've been telling ourselves I'm not going to do this again I'm not going to fall for this again what we don't often consider is that there is a secondary temptation after we've stumbled and sinned the temptation to just stay there Or to just wallow in self-criticism, to moan and groan and be angry with ourselves. I messed this up and we focus so much on that. Oh, I should have done better. I should have been stronger. I should have been more mature than this by now. And I think Jesus knew that Peter would be susceptible to that as well. So he warned him with an encouragement. You will fall, but don't stay where you fell. Don't let that failure define you. In Jesus' hands, all failure is redeemable. That is, it can be used for something good, if nothing else, than just as an encouragement to someone else, like he describes for Peter. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him, but he didn't want Peter to see himself as a denier of Christ. He wanted him to see himself as an encourager of his fellow disciples. The lesson to me is comforting when we fall, when we fall short of being who we were meant to be. And it's a high calling, it is. Uh, let's not avoid Jesus when we've fallen in those things. Let's turn to him. Let's allow him to reshape that failure into something good, something helpful and beneficial even to others. It's a promise to Peter, but it's a promise to us as well. We're never going to fall too far out of his reach. Okay, finishing up, verses 35 to 38. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news, and you didn't have any money, a traveler's bag or extra pair of sandals, did, did you need anything? No, they replied. But now, he said, take your money and your traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Look, Lord, they replied. We've got two swords among us. That's enough, he said. All right, and that's where we'll stop. Now, this admittedly is a strange section in here. Jesus revisits the mission that he sent them on earlier in this gospel, and he reminded them how people welcomed them when they came traveling in and took care of them and fed them and provided for them through God's impetus. Uh, They didn't need anything, but he warned them that that's all going to be different soon. There's going to be conflict and lack in the journey ahead. Jesus is about to be seen as a villain, uh, as he words it here. And it's a reminder to us that our relationship with Jesus draws us into a clash between heaven and earth. There is a battle raging, not that we're to be taking on a sense of embattlement, not that we're to be acting in any sort of militaristic kind of behavior, but to recognize there's stuff at work here. There's, you know, there's, there's powers at work here, and there's a conflict taking place. Much of what unfolds in volume two of Luke's gospel, we call that the book of Acts, we see happen just what he's describing here. The powers that be are never going to be okay with people claiming a supreme ruler over them. People who proclaim a king of kings and lord of lords become a threat to kings and lords of this world. It's going to make life very uneasy for Christ's followers. That's what he's saying here. And the last section of the text has been puzzling for ages. Jesus tells them to buy a sword but we know that when Peter tries to use said sword, that Jesus rebukes him for it, warning him those who live by the sword, that is living by violence, are going to you know, die the same way. So why did he say this? Why did he tell them to go by two swords? So what's interesting is most scholars in their commentaries, and I'm talking about a, 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 you know, a good sampling of that from various perspectives Uh, both reform and non-reform, most scholars in their commentaries suggest that Jesus is speaking figuratively when he says this, trying to say, you know, brace yourselves for conflict. We'll use figurative language when we say, hey, this is a hill I would die on. Well, we're not talking about a literal hill that we're literally going to die on. We're talking about a principle or something that we hold dearly that we're willing to take a stand for. Uh, the problem was, so the idea is that Jesus is trying to speak figuratively to them, saying, hey, it was nice and easy on that first mission. It's not going to be like that coming up. The problem was that the disciples did take it literally, and they surprised him by producing two swords. Uh, you know, So in other words, they're saying, we got this covered, Jesus. We've got lawyers, guns, and money, everything you need. We're going to be able to handle this. So verse 38, and, and I'm just passing along what, my research on this, Verse 38, according to most scholars that I've read, isn't having Jesus say, yeah, two swords is enough. Because we've got to think about, like, two swords is enough for what? Like, for the whole temple guard, the whole Roman army? Yeah, 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 there we go, let's go. Uh, it's believed that when Jesus says it's enough, it's uh, Jesus is saying it's enough he 's bringing this conversation to its close he 's saying enough of the sword talk this, enough of this conversation he 's like you 're trying to misunderstand me uh, so he 's basically saying okay let 's quit you 'll see what i 'm talking about in just a few hours either way it 's clear that Jesus is warning us that we 're going to be drawn into a clash with this world 's systems we 'll be at odds with abuses and oppressions that we may see and We are not going to use its political systems, but we will represent truth with a capital T, meaning that that the Jesus way, the way of sacrificial service and mercy and grace to the world around us, that's where this relationship with Jesus is meant to lead us into a clash, but a clash that is engaged in through love through self-sacrifice exactly the way jesus engaged in this clash so let's consider the lessons that we we have here let's examine our hearts let's let's ask god to help us to move beyond mere association with jesus into a deeper relationship with him where our lives are built around his values his priorities and where we're 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 all about representing that into this world. Let's show true greatness by cultivating a culture of serving each other in love here. And let's have hope, even in failure, that nothing is too far gone for Jesus to be able to redeem it. Let's represent that truth into our world and let's see what an impact that can have on the world around us. Right on? right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, that in all of these instructions that you give to your disciples, and we recognize ourselves as among those, we thank you, Lord, that that your purpose is not to condemn us, Your mission is not to make us smaller, but your intent is to enlarge our lives beyond what we could ever know by drawing us into our original vocation of bearing your image into the world. And so I I pray for us, Father, as your followers, as your disciples, hearing your instructions, recognizing your priorities. Help us, Lord, to embrace that. The world rages around us, Lord. It's a rushing current. It's it's something that requires our determination, our observation, and, and our will to stand steadfastly embracing your values of love and grace and mercy. Lord, help us. Help us to be those people in this world by your Spirit. This isn't something we achieve on our own. This is something that you, by your spirit, work in us as you reshape us into the human beings we were meant to be. Father, I pray for every person here. Meet the needs that are represented here. Father, meet each one of us and communicate as, as only you can do to each of us individually. Communicate your love, your care for us and instill us with that magnificent sense of purpose. I pray that you do that for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: point of reference, spoke to the dark, fleshed out the wonder of life. And as you speak, Creation sings your praises, so will I. God of your promise, don't speak in. spoken, all nature and science follow the sound of your voice, and as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath, you If it all reveals Your nature, so alive I. Every burn in Your heart and everything You say, every painted sky a canvas of Your grace. If creation still obeys You, so. one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them so alive. Like you would again a hundred billion times. But what
0: That is our prayer, Lord, that we will follow suit, that where you have loved without boundary, so will I. I pray that that's the commitment that we make as your people, as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, uh, we're going to finish up. Glad everybody came out today. It's good to see